Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls, and today I'm talking to my old and dear friend, Michael Debar. And I recommend you go to his website because the quantity of things that he's done as, a, as an artist is beyond my capacity to recite. And it, it's, uh, it's quite a test of one's self-esteem to see what Michael's accomplished. But he's a singer. He's made many albums, most recently one called The Key to the Universe. And one, at the same period of time, a rock band that he formed in the 70s called Silverhead is re-releasing all of their catalog this year. He's a songwriter of the hit Obsession. He is the host of the Michael Day Bar Show on Sirius XM Radio, which is heard from 8 to 11 Eastern Time. He's an actor who's been in more than 100 television shows and dozens of films, and uh, he's a cosmic dude. So, Michael Debar. <laughs> I'm exhausted from my resume. <laughs> Dude, and I just gave such a tiny sampling. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's quite extraordinary. But let's just start with this notion of calling a rock album the key to the universe. Is this, uh, what, what did you mean by this? Is this ironic? Is this... Uh, connected to some other dimension? Why did it's, you call it that? You know, it's a question more than anything else. Like everything is, you know, it, it was, uh, it was, I wanted to um, almost in a, in a make fun of and have fun with rather than make fun of the idea of the universe. Because when you think about it, rock and roll has become diminished to some degree. We can talk about it in many, many forms and ways, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, essentially, it's become diminished somewhat. And I wanted to do, you know, very much like the hip hop community is so grandiose. So I was always making fun of the grandiosity of the universe and how I had the key to it. Or if I didn't, if somebody could send it to me, I'd be very grateful. <laughs> you know? Excellent. Well, um, what, you know, you've been um, writing, singing, interpreting, and talking about rock and roll for, it's got to be, well, more than 40 years. And um, what is it, uh, in essence, that endures to keep your interest? Uh, you know, obviously, it's an art form that was created for teenagers and performed by people in their 20s. Um, I dare say you and I are not teenagers or in our 20s anymore. And yet there's, a, um, there's an ongoing energy that it has. What, what, is it, what, what does it say to you that makes you want to stay connected with it, both in terms of what you do as a broadcaster where you're playing and talking about rock and roll and as, as an artist who's, who's still singing it? I think the, the fountain of youth is enthusiasm. And I have enthusiasm for music. I have enthusiasm for you. I have enthusiasm from my friends, my family, my community. And, and I think that rock and roll is, has become, for all ages, I, I don't think it's um, particularly unique to young'uns. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have 
you know, Chuck Berry is 90, <laughs> you know. So I, th this is not lost upon me. I remember in the 80s, Keith Richards was asked, well, aren't you a little old to do all of this? And he said, well, look at the blues men. I mean, they're, they're 150 years old and they're playing clubs. It, for me, music is that beat, that ritualistic beat is my heartbeat. If I can keep that going, Danny, <laughs> you know, I can live forever in, is how I feel. And certainly this moment can be rich and full. And the soundtrack to this moment for me is rock and roll music. So, you know, over the years, you and I have talked a lot about this elusive thing that we talk about on the podcast a lot of, of, of spirituality, of the idea that there's some other dimension of life besides um, what we what we measure. And I know you're someone, as I am, who's very into measuring things. I mean, again, the hundred movies and hundreds of broadcasts and extremely accomplished in the so-called real world. And at the same time, I know that the motivation comes from somewhere else because God knows there are days and weeks and years that don't seem as exciting as, as, as other times. Do you have any way of defining what, what sort of your inner world? Yeah, you know, Krishna, when, I, when me and Miss Pamela used to go see Krishnamurti in Ohio, he, he would always talk about an otherness. Mm. There was another otherness, which was a place where there was no thought at all, if you recall. There was only being, and 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 I've been so active in my life because whatever it was, I would do it. You know me, Danny. I would say yes to doing a commercial with Alf for yes. condoms. I mean, or whatever. I've always said yes. Right. And I think that that's eternal. And you don't think about what's good for you, bad for you, going to advance your career, ambition, all of those things. I just want to be engaged. And I think that that is the otherness that Krishnamurti was talking about. I mean, there's many things that I learned from him by going up there to the orange groves in Ohio, which I think you've been to, haven't you? To I, see went, Krishnamurti, I went. You know, once, I went once. I went once with you. Him. Yeah. Oh well, you know, for me, he he was so important. I mean, the first thing that that I was struck by what he said was to have a psychological revolution, which that in itself was so immediate and so existential. And I, I think that I've been fed by the, by the desire to be occupied at all times with something, which means then you don't think about what comes next. You just do what is, and what is becomes everything. And I think that that's, a, that, I think that's given me the enthusiasm and the drive you know, I've always been extraordinarily driven. I've never known really, I've never been able to actually articulate it until this moment. <laughs> but I think, you know, so it's a beautiful question that you don't get asked very much. Usually I get asked what Jimmy Page was really like, you know, mm. or what was it like being made to the world's most famous groupie. My point is this, one very rarely comes up against um, the idea, or the, the idea comes up of spirituality and and what drives you to do this thing. And I really do believe that being a good friend is better than having a good friend. Mm. And, and I think that that's what may, has made me love people, audiences. So I want them to love me back, and it's a reciprocal thing. It's a conversation, not a sermon, you know, from rock stars. I remember when we did Live Aid, and I'm looking at it, 100,000 people, and I'm thinking, man, you know, 
without them we're nothing without us you, then this is one thing one thing one organism happening one orgasm happening at the same time and it's uh, you know I, I i really want people to dig what i'm doing and i want to see it in their eyes and um show business has it uh, allowed me to do that which is so incredibly strange and wonderful well you know a lot of people in show business would say some of these words but there's a level of sort of um, commitment to positivity that you've always had that uh, is is different than anybody else that that that, that, that I know. And um, you know, I'm just wondering: Do you have any sense of 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 how that formed inside you? Because it's not so easy to stay positive uh, in this world for any of us. And I certainly know it hasn't always been easy for you, and it's not always easy for for, for me. I I uh, uh, lean heavily on um, certain spiritual teachers and meditation and prayer. That's really the only place I know how to go when I'm feeling like uh, the biggest loser in the world. Um, how do you do it? I mean, I've never rarely seen you in a bad mood. I, I know you must have them. How do you get out of them? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, everything occurs to me all at once. I mean, if I'm going to be a loser, I'll be the best loser that ever was. How does that? Does that answer your question? You know, it's a, it's a Zen <laughs> response to the I'll be the biggest depressed mother in the entire galaxy. Uh, and nobody will be better than me at losing. <laughs> the other thing, it, it, to be more sort of, um, I suppose, serious about it is, my life has been trauma after trauma from the age of, you know, preteen. You know that. Yeah. I mean, I went to these boarding schools which were temples of hypocrisy and masturbatory. This was in this was in England, yes? It's in England, and I went to these boarding schools, and all you guys out there that are listening, I'm here to tell you that what you've heard is true. The class system in England is barbaric, which yeah. is so counter to what one would think of when one is watching Downton Abbey. The facts are that um, it is a grotesque uh, way to live. And I saw the hypocrisy very early because my parents, you know, my dad was in jail. My mom was, a, um, shall we say, um, institutionalized with schizophrenia and various things. So I grew up. And by some quirk, though, you were you were grandfathered into this elite school. Is that is that what happened? The quirk was that my father, who is titled and has a uh, is a marquee, which is hereditary, and 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 that meant that I was blue blood. However. This was done when I was one years old. By yeah. the time I was three, he was in prison. You know? Yeah, so right. <laughs> it, I was a kid, man, you know. And I remember going, I literally lived in one room with a bunch of, you know, very strange people that were friends of my mother. And one of them had to take me to Harrods to get my school uniform and my cricket outfit. And I thought the paradox of these girls that turn me onto Aubrey Beardsley. Yeah. And, and I'm going to, you know, join the, the upper class. I mean, so one has always been faced with... Um, so one can assume that you didn't exactly fit in at this uh, upper-class uh, place. Well, you know, what, what is wonderful, I think, about dear David Bowie's passing was mm. the quote that came uh, to surface, which was when people called him a chameleon. You know, I knew David Bowie. What he said was that whenever anybody described as a chameleon, they got it completely in reverse because a chameleon changes his skin color to fit in. Yes. It's completely the opposite. 
absolutely anybody that calls Bowie a chameleon is is utterly and completely wrong. And right. I think that you must own whatever persona you're going to choose, not let it own you. That that's that was the key for me. I had to fit in. I've had to fit in in many different. You have to fit in in a band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or as you know, and as presidents of record companies and managers of artists, you fit in to the collaborative process. I was just really good at that. Yeah. You know, I knew when to back off and not be captain. And I, and, I, and I knew when to take the reins of the horse when it needed to run, you know. And, and it, but it was calculation, calculated and instinctive all at the same time. I learned very early on to make things work, you have to make people feel good about themselves. If you make everybody around you feel safe, it's not that, that difficult to be positive. Yeah, I remember one of your lines years ago was always tell people how good their hair looks. That's it. You you know, and and it's really it, it really works. You know, I I mean, you know, it really really works. You say, God, those shoes, man, where that? Those shoes are absolutely spectacular, and you probably get a check as a result. <laughs> I mean, if I walk on a set. And everybody, and you're doing a series, and you know all those guys—they're stars and, and girls. They're all stars of the show. If you go on there and go, "This is the greatest TV show. I've, I'm a proud member of SAG to be with you in this stage." <laughs> There's something about this guy I really like. <laughs> and you know, and what happens is though, is that that atmosphere makes one feel safe enough to be able to take chances and give a good performance, you know. So it's all very, you know, I would say to the lighting guy the first day, I'd go, man, you are just such a, the lighting of that last scene was exquisite. It's pretty clear that I'm going to get pretty good lighting for the rest of the week on that show, right? And and that might sound calculating, but you're doing two things at once. You're yes. setting, you're setting a, 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 a this wonderful space within which you can be terrific at what you're meant to be doing. And you're making a guy feel good or a girl. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is the best sandwich I've ever had at the craft service table will mean that, you know, that person will go on that night and feel good. And when you see the next morning, you remember their name. Hi, Helen. Good morning, Helen. Give me another sandwich like you gave me yesterday. It's not hard to do. I'll tell you a story about Clint Eastwood. When I did a movie with Clint Eastwood, Man, this is Clint. This is Dirty Harry I'm looking at, you know. And it was amazing. We broke for lunch. And traditionally, you get the stars at the front. They go get their food on location. But Clint Eastwood stood at the back of the line. And that taught me something. A, that's a really smart thing to do if you want teamwork. Mm. <laughs> you know? yeah. To show you're a member of this. This thing that you're not the, the beacon through which everybody around which everybody revolves, but you're there to serve a collaborative process. So from then on, I absolutely went to the back of the line, and that would filter through the crew and the rest of the cast, and I was a good guy, and therefore things would be smoother. So it was necessity and love and appreciation, and respect in one great potpourri of uh, magic. Mm, mm. So who are your great inspirations? Um, I, I would say I have many, you are one, if, um, if I may say so, um, a man who retained his spirituality in the battle zone of... Showbiz. Dude, I, I feel you're treating me like the lighting guy. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are the lighting guy. Here's another thing. When I did, I did, my, I'm in Paris, we, I went as a, a student, drama student swap, 
and we went over, and he said to me, if you, you can see what I'm doing, your, your listeners can't, but you imagine a spotlight in your forehead, so everywhere you look, you're, you're lightening up what's happening. I'm you're sorry, pre- my mind watered, even if the listeners didn't. What is it, who told you this about the spotlight inside you? I did a, a three months of mime in Paris, France. It was mm. all the age, Bowie loved it, and you yes. know, this, talking about the early, late 60s, early 70s, London was this sort of living theater of right. rock and roll and, and uh, mime and all of those things that now Woody Allen taught us to despise. But I, I loved it. And it taught me that if I have a spotlight in my forehead that every, and I just look at anyone, it's going to illuminate them and they're going to feel that light and feel stronger, and more powerful and more themselves by doing it and and that taught me an awful lot man that, that, wow that that's so cool yeah it, it because what it does is what it did was through the arts it's a very spiritual i mean ram Dass talks about that yeah he talks about enlightening enlight listen to the word if i'm good to the lighting man i'm i'm enlightening the lightning man right yes yes so that's what ram Dass said that and all if you really do, and I know you do, your research on Ram Dass and, and all of the gurus that you've come across, Hilda, Charlton, etc., they all had a light. Hmm. What do you think a fucking aura is? So you're, you're, this idea of shining a light from your forehead came from studying mime. That's so, that's yeah. so interesting. And, yeah. uh, and, you've, and you sort of just kept that, you just sort of picked that up from that and, and brought it into rock and roll? I brought it into rock and roll and I brought it into my personal life and my friends because I don't see any separation between right. what I do and who I am. And the other, the other thing to remember is when, you, when you're in the arts, everybody works within a frame. You've heard me say this a thousand times. It's in my documentary. But there's a frame here. And if you can fit into that frame, it can be any size. It can be the magnitude of a laptop or uh, IMAX. It doesn't matter. But you work within this this frame, which is really making your consciousness visual. Mm. So if I look at your little frame on this thing, as we're doing this Skype thing, you know, I can see that I'm working within a box. And while people say, hey, think outside the box, wrong. (laughs) 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 Yeah, boxes are very important in many ways. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Anyway, I was asking you who your inspirations were, uh, other than well, me, yeah. other than me, um, uh, as as a, as an art. Let's just put in different categories as a songwriter. Oh, as a songwriter, unquestionably, um, the early bluesmen. I always thought that Willie Dixon was the was the greatest songwriter that I ever heard. Tell and people sure. some of the songs that he wrote. Well, I mean, you know, he, he wrote all of the songs that the Stone covered, uh, Stones covered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they, they, had a, they had to change, uh, they had to give him uh, money for some songs early on, right? That he, uh, uh, you, yeah. our, our, you know, our, our friend also had to do that. Too, yes, yes, uh, yes. Our song friend, shall Correct. We say. No, a well, couple of the British men. But he you, just, I Just Want to Make Love to You was his. And, uh, back, you know, and, and did he do Backdoor, Backdoor Man was his, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and yes, I mean, any song that you ally with British blues bands like Hoochie Coochie Man or any of those songs, that Willie Dixon was the one that came up with that. So he was always influenced. But then as time went on, it's gotten wider. Lately, I've been listening to a lot of Leonard Cohen hmm. because I saw a speech he gave. He was honored somewhere in the Netherlands, perhaps. 
But he was talking about how, you know, he's a conduit and, and all of these, this great work comes through you. It doesn't come from you. And, and, and that's very important, which means that to answer your question and not be too vague, but I think that, you know, m my most uh, inspiring songwriter would be God. Hmm. Um, that would be my co-writer yes. uh, also in songs because yes. it's, it's not you, you see. It's, it's not you. you. You just open yourself enough and it comes in and then there you are. I mean, the greatest songs I've ever written, I've written in five minutes. Now, that's not an academic intellectual Mm, answer right. it's yeah. a spiritual yeah. answer i mean if you think of all the great songs the gospel songs how did you think that the gospel songs are written they were written in a state of ecstasy right call and response that's what rock and roll is let me hear you say yeah 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 whether in church or in a stadium it's the same thing man you know it's a gospelized vibe call and response but the the response is from god you know and you call God and you say, you know, I need a really good chorus right now. I, you know, <laughs> from my next album. And I think the greatest inspiration is certainly my awareness of a consciousness and a unity that uh, is not physical. Now, on, on, on the Sirius show, which, which is on every day, I think, right? Or every weekday, the Sirius show, the Michael Debar show. Yeah. So, so you're, you're in, a, in that vein, in that box you're playing and introducing and talking about uh, mostly older music, occasionally some new music. And um, what, what is the difference? Do you have a sense of, of balancing sort of honoring the past and the kind of comfort that comes from an old song with being in the moment? They, they... Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I've thought about this a great deal because I've been playing, you know, I want to be sedated for three years now every yeah. day. But, but here's the thing, listen, man. Hamlet, okay, let's talk about the great classics. How many times has Hamlet been performed? Oh, uh, uh, 197 times in the last three years. Yeah, and think about the last 500 years. Yeah, many times. So, and, and do you feel the same way about when you first saw the Statue of David at 16 as you do at 60? Well, what about you? Do you? Well, that's the answer to my question. It's not the same. Right. Every time I play these things, it's different. It's a different feeling I get. It depends what I bring to it. That's what's so great about art and why art is so... That's what Warhol's point was, repetition of a singular object would then make you see it in, from different angles at different times. So if I... You know, you've read books that you love many times, but it brings different things to you every time now. I'm being kind of overreaching. Well, well, the advantage of getting old, the advantage of getting older is I've forgotten the book, so I can. It's like reading it all over again. But exactly, uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But the but, playlist that Stevie Van Zandt has created is really eclectic, and I do find you know because when I first got on, on Sirius XM, I wasn't that familiar with the Coasters or the Drifters or all of those sort of do what vocal. Right. But his view of rock and roll is so incredibly dense you know yeah that it was an education and remains so and um i i really uh, the repetition of it i find soothing yes um i i do find soothing not in a sentimental way but uh, I, I it's a familiarity it's like your favorite jeans and what about new artists who's who's been speaking to you in the last uh, few years 
Well, they're slim and few and far between. But I know there's a lot of great talent out there because I, uh, everybody sells, sends me everything, you know, and I hear a lot of new bands, and, and as you do and, and have done most of your career, and, and it, it, it is disillusioning for the most part, you know. But I think the last great innovator and influencer um, is Jack White. Mm. Um, I would say Kurt obviously preceded him. If you're talking about icons, you know, and you really want to be singular about it, I would say Jack. And that's the art form that you like the best is the iconic artist, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's your, that's your thing. Yeah. That's my thing is icons. I was just thinking about Percy today, Robert Plant, our mutual friend. And I was thinking just how amazing he really is because he's, he's one of the only icons as it were, who has, um, you know, embraced other genres of music and continued doing different things rather than staying within your comfort zone of Maggie May if you're Rod or Jumping Jack Flash if you're Mick, you know, or It's Your Song if you're Elton. You know, he's he's progressed. He's, yeah. he's embraced Americana and, and, and Moroccan Eastern flavors. And, and I think he's just about the only one. The only... Well, one, well, Bowie did it, didn't he? Bowie is the one that did it on a... But, he, you know, he once said to me something so interesting. He said, I'm the only guy to come out of 60s rock and roll that didn't like Chuck Berry. Right. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Yeah. You know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. to me, that is... I mean, that says everything to me. Because... Either you've got the velvet pants on with the flares and the high heels and the shaggy hair and the you know the tooth earring and the tooth missing and eyeliner, or you're David Bowie, <laughs> you know, and none of those things apply. You know, he was Bertolt Brecht, he was Jacques Brel. His influences were uh, very different, and yet he still stayed sexy. You know, which is, I don't know how he accomplished that man because even Prince was an amalgam of James Brown and and so on and funk and all the rest of it. Yes, yeah, Sly. Sly, very much so. Yeah, a, little Hendri- a little some Hendrix. And Curtis Mayfield, and all of the great, you know, innovators of soul and funk. But Bowie? <laughs> I mean, Lou Reed, of course, I guess would be if you had to single anybody out. But the point being is, is that, yes, I'm inspired by, by um, many, many things. I mean, I can be inspired on a rock and roll level by, um, we went to Kauai, and I, I'm sitting in this jungle, this beautiful... Um, beautiful botanical garden. Thinking, my God, you know, nature is so is so rock and roll. The 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 power of that river coming down here is it reminded me of you know one of Jimmy Page's solos. You know, it's all kind of one thing. Sometimes it all weaves together, especially nature. I mean, you know that. You know, you go for a walk in nature. It's the most nourishing, uh, meditative feeling that one can have very calming for me to go to a place with no Starbucks you know, to, uh, that helps me so where you, you you live in uh, Southern California yes I do yes and so do you go uh, are you able to go on you go to any of the parks or do you what, what do you do there to well, I you go, go to the ocean you, or what do you do I go to what you got married buddy the, <laughs> you know the self-realization fellowship yeah. Ramahansi Yogananda, who is also a tremendous, uh, the autobiography of Yogi is is a manual of yeah. meditation beauty. Yeah. Um, so I go there a lot, hmm. and I'll go there 
you're, you're obviously asking me how do I calm down in that Hollywood uh, rat race on the 405 and the 101 and the freeways where even the cars have agents, I swear to God. <laughs> but it, it's, um, so I go there. The ocean is, is beautiful. I am in love with Britta, my girl of eight yeah. years, and, yeah. and she is the ocean. Mm. <laughs> yeah. To a great degree, so I go swimming her every now and then, you know. And you know, it's, I I don't really need to go anywhere. Yeah, I I can sit in this beautiful room that I'm in right now, where I broadcast my show from, where I write songs with people from, and it and that that's a sort of a place of meditativeness. But I think it's a trap in a sense to think of the cave, and the monk, and the silence, and the loneliness, and the isolation of meditation and enlightenment. I don't I don't uh, offer that up. <laughs> well, anything, anything can be a, a habit and anything can kind of be real. I mean, there's a teacher named uh, Chungpa Rinpoche, who I, I don't know as much about as most of the people who do these podcasts, but he coined a phrase called spiritual materialism, which was his critique of all of the people who decided to be so holy and put on beads and talk about how much they meditated, that, that anything that becomes sort of an ego thing, uh, even if it's in the name of spirituality, it can can have the opposite effect. Um, and similarly, being in the moment and doing sort of, you know, boiling an egg can be cosmic. But... It has to be, yeah. It has to be. Boiling eggs terribly important. I mean, I don't eat eggs, but if I did boil eggs, I'm sure I'd get off. It's, um, yeah, you, every, everything, I mean, if you do break it down, every single gesture, every breath... That's what Krishnamurti said. You've got to be aware every moment of what you're doing. Hmm. Everything, you know, so you don't have time. His thing, I think, what I interpreted anyway, was you don't make time for yourself. But what I'm getting, you know, I think somebody could look at it, at what you've accomplished, what you are accomplishing, both the actual accomplishments and the force with which you've done it over year after year, decade after decade, and say, well, how do I get to be like him? You know, is this something you're just born with? Is this like Michael Jordan was just born being a great basketball player? He couldn't teach anyone else to be Michael Jordan. Or is there anything, if there's somebody, you know, uh, you know, out there who's, who's, who's trying to express themselves and is, uh, is not sure what to do next. I mean, is there anything that's, uh, that's helped you um, have this commitment to hanging in there? Because yes. <laughs> yes, and it's called discipline. Yeah. And when you use the word discipline, what comes to mind? Well, what comes to mind to me is health. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to be aware of consciousness and the tremendous necessity to bond with every single person you meet. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to go see them again. It's all about uh, the focus and discipline of health, of exercise, and an incredibly cool wardrobe, and a very, <laughs> and a very reliable hairdresser. And and I think with those four things, you'd be okay. Mm, excellent. Good news. Uh, let's talk about uh, the, the the dramatic part of your of your life: movies, television. Uh, what what have you uh, what's what's inspired you in, in, in the current scene? What 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 what? Do you, where do you think the great uh, drama is? I think the greatest actor 
in today's world, in today's culture, and I'm a late comer to his brilliance, is Alan Cranston. I, well, I Alan Cranston was a senator from California who died quite a few years ago. Brian Cranston. Excellent. His nephew, Brian. His work in Breaking Bad is, to me, the greatest cultural event of the last 10 years. Hmm. Because you're looking at an America that, uh, that we need to look at. And, and this guy's performance and commitment to that role with the deception, with this, with this incredible um, transition from being this mild-mannered dude with cancer that didn't have the balls to go out and be a big businessman and worked in uh, teaching kids to become this mad uh, entrepreneurial <laughs> meth dealer. I, I just am so uh, um, captured by, by his work in there, and I, I think he's amazing. So that's been very inspiring mm. as an actor, just to watch. But they're, they're few and far between these moments, mm, man. Mm. You know, for the, that really things that get me off, I found of late that repetition of seeing things that I've watched a thousand times is comforting. You know, and and still still intriguing and stuff. I can look at silent movies over and over and over. And you know, a lot of people who make uh, are in film and cinema say that silent movies were the key. That was the real peak of making movies. Well, if someone wasn't really into silent movies and you were going to give them a couple to look at, what would you tell them to watch? Um, Metropolis. Right. Uh, Intolerance, from the great D.W. Griffith. Mm. I, I would say anything with Douglas Fairbanks Sr. in it. <laughs> because he put the, the swash and buckle, this guy. I mean, he was that kind of hands on the hips with teeth gleaming kind of thing with a headband and a sword. Mm. That's an archetype that will never go away. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's jumping Jack Flash, but he hasn't got a sword. He's got a microphone. It's, it's confidence. It's beauty, you know. And then, of course, you've got the silent stars. The, the camera just played on their faces. Marlena Dietrich, you mm. know, Hedy Lamarr, you know. And, and then later... Are you a Buster Keaton guy? Huge Buster Keaton guy mm. with, with this no expression whatsoever. I mean, how yeah. zen is that? Yeah. Where he's had a house collapse behind him and he doesn't bat an eyelid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That I found so... That image... And Chaplin's sort of grotesque slapstick mess, you know, and the idea of a homeless guy being the funniest man in the world, I find ironic. Hmm. Now, just this is a complete different path in the conversation, but I want to I want to go back to, you know, when you said Alan Cranston, the, the, why that name might be in your head. You might recall that we met Alan Cranston, you and I in Washington. Well, and, 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 and this I was a. And and the reason for this was that you created something in the I guess it was the eighties the uh, I, I get I, I lose track of the decades uh, called Rock Against Drugs and I don't particularly want to relive Rock Against Drugs but I do want to note the fact that you know as someone who who came into the rock and roll world uh, which was heavily fueled by drugs uh, you uh, you um, went a different way at a certain point in your life in your thirties and uh, and have have been many decades. In that is um, is the twelve step program been something that's been part of what's uh, how, how do you integrate that into the rest of this because it's certainly not um, you've got you, you know you've got a one of a kind approach to being alive but yet I know that's in the mix there. Drugs gotta go. You can't do drugs. Um, 
and alcohol, you, you know, you can, and I did, and I learned a lot. I'm not saying that one can't do them. I'm saying, yeah. hey, please yeah. experiment with everything, whatever, whatever it is, you know. Um, have a virtual girlfriend on, uh, online, whatever. It's none of my business. But what, what is important to me is I don't really like to be owned by anything. I don't yeah. think that's particularly healthy. And the transition for me, as you know, more than most, what happened to me was, you know, I went at it hook, line, and sinker, as I do everything. Yeah, yeah. I considered taking drugs as important as the lyric to a song. If you can think of it in those terms, that that would be the metaphor, that it was a persona. I either had to be, I had to be two things, the thinnest person in the room mm. and the most stoned person in the room. And preferably Otherwise, both. Otherwise, Preferably, absolutely, both at all times. Now, that takes a toll. Yeah. <laughs> and people say to me, you know, Michael, how come you got sober in 1981? I said, I looked in the mirror and I saw Iggy Pop's mom. You know, right. and, and, and it's vanity that got me sober. It yeah. wasn't to Jesus. Yeah. I looked at my, where's my cheekbones? Holy shit, where did I put my cheekbones? It's a nightmare, you know. And I saw this swollen boat race, and I thought, no, this is not cool. Boat race is cockney slang for face for, for your listeners, but it, it really was vanity. However, within um, two or three months, I realized that this is a door to a world that Aldous Huxley spoke about and, uh, and the great philosophers have, have talked about. And, uh, and it was a springboard. Twelve mm. steps are great, but um, it's been 36 years since I had a drink or, you know, or any narcotics. Right. Yeah. And so... Um, it's, that's been a long time. So obviously you find uh, um, other ways of progressing and going deeper into metaphysics, um, but it opens a door. I would say before I got sober, I was completely amoral. I had no real need or desire to be good. Mm, mm. <laughs> you know, my, my ambitions were to be bad, and the badder you were, the cooler you were. So it was a complete Jekyll and Hyde situation with me. An absolute overnight, I got sober overnight and never touched anything. That one time you said, you turn me on to it. You turn me on to your, your buddy and partner at that time, Paul Fishkin. He took me to a meeting of AA and that was it. Mm. No rehabs. There's no rehabs 36 years ago. But, you know, but where does this idea of being good come from? As Steve Earle, who's a mutual friend and who talks a lot about 12 steps always says it's not called assholes anonymous meaning that there are assholes in the in the program that that's a separate thing where yeah, did this idea of being good come from but the, here's the thing that i just want to talk about steve's quote we are all assholes the minute you start dividing assholes from alcoholics you really get into with the, the mm. deepest respect mm. um, we are all capable of being an asshole wouldn't you say yes i would so, to proselytize that, um, yes, there are assholes. See, this no, is no, the- no. I, just to, to paraphrase him, he, he he was just saying that getting sober is not is not the end yeah. of something; it's the beginning of something, and that yes, and yes. that then there are other things one has to do to be realized as a human being. And and he was just saying it's not it, it, it it's not enough. It's it's necessary but not sufficient. What is interesting to me is that uh, you know philosophical um, awareness is something that has no there's no teams hmm. um, there's just you you know and like when Krishnamurti was ready to pass on he begged his followers not to uh, quote him <laughs> I know he was so hardcore yeah he said 
just forget about me, okay? Yeah, he was so hardcore, I know. C.W., the deification of the of the sober person is ludicrous, and he's absolutely right. Steve. Yeah, it's, yeah. My, my point is not that um, he, he said anything divisive. My point is to make the point that if you start singling people out, you know, I mean, Christian Ray said, no, no gurus, there's no gurus. No, he was into the, he was not into gurus. He, he could have been, uh, again, there's people a lot smarter about this than me, but I believe that he could have been like the Dalai Lama or something. I mean, he, well, he, he was, he was, he was chosen to be yeah. a master of, uh, uh, and he absolutely walked away from it and, and, and would have no part of being worshipped. Um, because yeah, he felt the, the, there was cool. no any form, any anything in form was not it. That whatever it is is without form. That was his. That's exactly right. That's what yeah. he says. The otherness is a place with no thought, and and being chosen by Annie Besant and all those rich Victorian yeah. matrons, and dragged over to England when you're 19, and and groomed as being Jesus, yeah. which is what he did. Yeah. And, and then he woke up one morning and said, I don't like this at all. I'm going to California, <laughs> which is somewhat similar to my story. It's interesting about California. Not that, of course, Huxley ends up in California also. Yeah. And they love each other. Yeah. And, and Yogananda ends up in California. So it has been a magnet for a lot of, uh, a lot of these people, as it has been for, for you. Well, um, I thank you very much for giving us your time. I urge everybody to uh, listen to your radio show and your record. The key to the universe, dude. Yeah, uh, man. Uh, may you find more keys to more universes. Thank you so much, Mikey. Thank you, Danny. God bless. God bless you.